You are listening to Wolf in Tune, and this is Richard Wolfie Wolf. Cue the music. Today, I am delighted to say my guest is Dr. Chaim Newman. Dr. Newman is a clinical psychologist who specializes in mental health issues of the music community. And he has a specially intimate knowledge of this because he himself, for decades, was a touring musician. And on top of that, Dr. Newman has a lot of experience and knowledge in the practice of Vipassana, or as he would say, Vipassana, I'm sure, which is the practice of mindfulness. So uh, there you have an alluring cocktail of talking points which is precisely why I've invited Dr. Chaim Newman on to this uh, extravaganza. Dr. Newman, welcome to Wolfentune. Thank you, mi amigo. It's nice to be here with you today. So am I, I got your pronunciation right, which is rare, right, Dr. Chaim? It, it is indeed rare, and, and from what I hear, you might have some personal experience with that. Yeah, okay. So I was going to keep that uh, under wraps, oh, but yeah. yes, no do, problem. Do we, do, we want to, do we want to retake that? Do you want to, <laughs> no. do you want to start again? And, I'll, and I'll, I'll, give you, I'll, give you a good, I'll give you a good industry anecdote about it. Well, I'm, I'm, I am Chaim, you're right, in Hebrew, and uh, no problem. And I'm wondering if people that don't speak German or Arabic or Hebrew that has the chas sound, do they call you Chaim? Uh, so I get a lot of uh, Chaim, Chaim. Klyim seems to be a peculiar one because there's no L, but yet I get a lot of that. Chayim. Uh, and what's happened in the music industry, which is really wonderful, is, you know, a handful of years ago, uh, a band of uh, three sisters from uh, the L.A. area sort of burst onto the scene uh, with uh, quite a bit of oh, uh, yeah. critical acclaim. Yeah. And uh, their name is Chaim, H-A-I-M, right. which actually is really the anglicized version of Chaim, which is their last name. And uh, and so, you know, most people around the industry are certainly familiar with them and they've, you know, been, I yeah. think, Grammy nominated and, yeah. you know, quite successful and really talented. And, uh, and so they've sort of normalized my name in the industry. So now when I introduce myself to people, uh, whether it's, you know, managers or agents or people on the live side, and I say, oh, my name is Chaim. And they're like, Oh, like the band. And so uh, it's, it's kind of made it uh, nice for me. And actually a whole bunch of years ago, I was, uh, I was working doing artist relations at uh, the Governor's Ball Music Festival in New York. And they were one of the acts on the bill. And, and we, were, uh, we were getting their dressing room set up and they, uh, and they came on by. And I said, hey, I just really want to thank you guys. You've impacted me more than you know. And they were like, oh, like our music? And I was like, no, actually your name, funny enough. And it was sort of a cute moment. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. As I know them too. They used to do the block parties. Uh, my fr my son is friendly with them. All right, so let's talk Turkey now. From time immemorial, the music community has been afflicted with the four horsemen of the musical apocalypse, which are in no order of importance: anxiety, depression, addiction, and suicidal tendencies. And so my first question uh, that I'm going to lob to you is, why? Why is the music community in particular so susceptible to and targeted by the four horsemen of the musical apocalypse? Yeah, I mean, it's such a great, I mean, to be honest, in some ways, that's the 
the first million dollar question that everyone, uh, you know, in creating change around this in the music industry, it's the first question we have to answer. And, you know, before we figure out how to solve uh, some of those crises of the four horsemen, I really do love the way you put it. I think it's such a, it's such a beautiful synopsis of what are the major issues. Uh, but the first question we have to answer is exactly what you asked, which is why is this so prevalent in the industry? And, you know, some of the data we collected looking at touring musicians suggests that the numbers, like the prevalence of depression, anxiety, uh, addiction, and suicidality uh, are between four and seven times as common as they are in the general population, right? So among, among, and that's just among the touring sector of the industry. But I mean, those numbers are significant. And the study we, the, the last major study we did, I mean, this was startling. 50% of respondents sort of hit levels of what would have been diagnosed as clinical depression. 50%. I mean, so one out of every two people that's on the road. And this is artist and crew. Uh, so, you know, so we've, we've thought a lot about trying to understand, you know, sort of like why this is. And, uh, and there's a handful of reasons. There's a handful. I mean, I think it starts in some ways. It starts before the music industry. It starts before the individual ever encounters the music industry. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, people are coming in to their work as an artist, as a performer, as a studio person, as a manager, as whatever aspect of the industry they're involved in, uh, many of them are already coming in with significant mental health issues. And the industry almost self-selects for those people. And if you think about why, there's sort of a couple of interesting reasons why. One, you know, if we look at sort of like the biology uh, we know that people, uh, the right brain tends to be associated with uh, negative affect, right? Negative emotion. And people who are right brain dominant tend to have higher levels of, uh, of negative emotional experience, right? So they might have higher depression, anxiety. That also is the side of the brain associated with creativity. And so creatives tend to be more right brain dominant. So already you've got people who are naturally pulled to sort of creative endeavor, which certainly, you know, the music industry has uh, plenty of remarkably creative people, uh, are already the kinds of people who have this, uh, this predilection biologically uh, to have more negative emotional experiences. Uh, then when you sort of add to that the environment, and again, this is before what being in the industry actually does. This is just why people choose to be in the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, if you think about it, and I don't know, you know, about sort of, we talked a little bit in the past about how you got into the industry, but, you know, for so many uh, people that have been involved in it, it was kind of like, you know, that sense of growing up as a misfit or as a bit of a rebel or a bit isolated, not socially mainstream, you know, like the music industry invites those sort of people. It's, it's the perfect place. One of, uh, in the support group that we run, uh, that we've been running for the last 65 weeks uh, for people in the music industry during COVID. Uh, and one of the first weeks, uh, an individual, a Canadian uh, attendee of our group has been coming for now for a year, uh, basically said, you know, the industry is like the box of misfit toys 
You know, mm-hmm. where sort of like all the toys that didn't really fit with any other group of toys sort of end up gathering together in the music industry. Mm. So the industry itself kind of self-selects for people who maybe are a little socially isolated, maybe are a little emotionally intense, maybe carry a lot of angst. And I think we know this anecdotally probably to be true. Um, but it makes sense that even just coming in before someone ever encounters the industry, like those people that are likely to then become artists and creatives and industry people probably already are coming in with higher levels than the norm in terms of depression, anxiety, suicidality, and substance use. So that's, I think, the first sort of piece of the equation. Does that, that make sense? Yes, totally, totally. And, and creatives tend to be more vulnerable at least they're less inhibited in terms of expressing their vulnerability and uh, maybe more sensitive. Absolutely. And I think Rick Rubin said something that, I, that struck me. Um, he said, yeah, we creatives are more sensitive than most people, and uh, we live in a culture of kill the pain, whereas uh, people that meditate, instead of killing the pain, they go into the pain. But... Let's agree and and totally assume that you're starting with a certain proclivity to negative emotions. Yeah. So then take that and then you add to that sort of the nature of the industry. And, you know, and there's a whole series of things about the industry. Now I happen now I'm going to say some things that are going to sound probably very harsh, but let it be said with a caveat that, you know, I love this industry more than anything in the world. And I always have, and I've always been fascinated by it. Most of my, you know, dear friends are artists and performers and crew members and lighting and sound engineers. And so I, I love everything about this industry. And simultaneous to that, I also recognize that it does a little bit set people up for disaster from a mental health perspective. And if you think about it like this, right, the first of all, the instability in terms of if you're on the touring side, right, I mean, you could be on the road 250 days a year. So health routines, instability in relationships, abnormal sleep patterns, you know, it's like all the things that you would think would would be like the obvious catalysts for mental health crisis are are like rampant in the lifestyle and that's before even the access to to you know drugs and alcohol it's just the plain old instability of being on the road being away from your home for so long being away from your support system uh then you've got the pressure to perform right and that is relentless you know if you're an artist you know that there's a thousand you know budding artists behind you gunning for your spot on the billboard charts you know, and, and, and as soon as you write, what do they say? You're only as good as your last album or your last piece of creative output. And the pressure around that is just relentless. And the same is true on the other side for, you know, people who are like crew members and behind the scenes, or if you're a manager or an agent, it's like there are an infinite amount of people who like see this industry as alluring and are gunning for those jobs. And so the pressure to constantly perform and constantly be able to uh, to deliver at a high level, uh, you know, while looking over your shoulder at uh, sort of who's coming next after you is can be incredibly, incredibly stressful and uh, can feed all of these uh, these four horsemen. And then I think there's one last piece, which maybe to me is the biggest piece. Um, you know, we tend to, when you think about people's self-worth and their sense of self, um, you know, in almost almost every 
every single mental health issue in some ways can be connected back to a person's sense of self, you know, and like, you know, when we're anxious, it's because our sense of self, you know, we mistrust our, our own ability to navigate a world that can be threatening, right? When we're depressed, you know, it's that lack of self-worth of feeling like we're unlovable or unworthy or don't have anything to give to the world. You know, suicide is just at the extreme uh, of that, you know, spectrum. Uh, substance use, so often, you know, the years I spent running a rehab center, so much of the work we did with people actually had nothing to do with substance use. It just looked at their sense of self and how much they were using substances simply as a band-aid for waking up and looking in the mirror and hating the person they saw or feeling shame. You know, shame is maybe the biggie, you know, in terms of dark emotions that we tend to, to not want to talk about. Um, and so what happens is, you know, so, so people in the end uh, evolve in one of two ways. You know, in one camp, you have the, the 90% of us who struggle with our sense of self and feel unworthy, broken, flawed, not good enough, you know, in some way or another. And then you've got, you know, the five, the 10% who maybe, you know, miraculously were, were raised by, you know, really nurturing parenting and got all the right messages and had supportive peers and didn't get bullied and, uh, and who have this sense of, I'm just enough as I am. You know, and what happens is, and then there's this weird in between and the in between is like, I'm not good enough. I'm broken. I'm flawed. I'm, I'm not worthy, but if I just do X or Y, or if I just have, right, if I just get a number one single, if I just get this level of fame, if I just have this many Instagram followers, if I just make this much money, right, if I'm just on the cover of this thing, if I just drive this McLaren sports car, right, then I'll be enough. And the music industry is really good at sort of fostering that you know, among its constituents, right? It's if you're an agent, it's like, if I just, you know, route like the most amount of tour dates I can, you know, this year, if you're a crew member, it's like, if I just work the, you know, most amount of hours on this tour leg without, you know, burning out and dying. If you're an artist, it's, you know, if I just achieve the most success with this record, like, then I'm enough. And so what we're doing is we're, we're feeding a community of people, a message, not that they're valid just as they are, but it's that they're valid if, which in the end, if we're only valid contingent on something else, then it means that fundamentally we're not valid the way we are. And I think that is really an epidemic that sort of festers beneath the surface in the industry that probably drives a lot of what we're seeing of the, you know, the exponentially higher rates of depression, anxiety, suicidality, and substance use. It's so true that the sense of self really is at the root of so much of this, uh, these afflictive emotions. And I think there are two, two factors going on. You're absolutely right. If you've achieved a certain level of success, you get used to that and you think, okay, that's my purpose. Take Prince, for example, who died of a drug overdose and who said he would rather dream and sleep than do anything else in the last year of his life. He was used to putting out records that became a touchstone of the, the cultural landscape. People would talk about it. It was very relevant. Then he lost his impact. I mean, he, he could sell out auditoriums. People would love to see him live, like going to a museum. 
but his creative output was no longer ruling the charts. And he lost the sense of self, as you said. It's all, it's all about the sense of self. No matter how successful you are, at some point, whether you're Elvis Presley, Tom Petty, uh, Juice World, whatever it is, at some point, you're not going to hit the charts like you did before and like you were talking about. Looking backwards, you're going you're gonna to lose that sense of worth, worthiness, that self-esteem, and sense of purpose. And I think that's really key that, that uh, if you're talented and you can create these unique songs and works of art, you think that's your purpose in life and you have no other purpose. Leonard Cohen famously said, he said, only one thing made him happy. But when that one thing was gone, everything made him happy. Mm, I love that line. And, and I'm wondering what you think about this, because this is, this is a theory that I have. And by the way, I think a lot of what you're saying comes from um, experience, I'm sure, or dealing with people, but I think some of these insights come from mindfulness, but we'll get to that in a minute. I have this theory that when you're a musician, and I don't know if you've felt this, I'm sure you've felt this, that you're going beyond yourself. You're transcending yourself. You're connecting with something bigger than yourself. It's a high. And then when the music stops, you're back to you know, living with yourself. And that's a very hard adjustment to make, which is another blow to your self-esteem because you're no longer you know, achieving that transcendent goal of connecting with other people in a transpersonal relationship. Yeah, the crash. You know, I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound so, you know, um, trite and cheesy. And, and so I'm going to, uh, you know, I apologize for it in advance, but I wonder if the tragedy is that people don't see their everyday experiences transcended, you know? Abs that's it. And, and it's like, if, if the moment of conduit, which, you know, if you and I could sort of think about it from the meditative senses is going beneath your ego and, you know, you're sort of, there's not like a me and, you know, and then there's the world it's, we sort of like melt into the fabric of the universe. And we're just a part of things in that moment, a, a, you know, living, breathing, just, you know, cluster of atoms linked to all the other atoms. And it's like, then that experience on stage or when we're in the studio is so profound. Um, and it's the art isn't, uh, the contrast, the art is learning how to have that experience when you go grocery shopping and uh, when you have a cup of tea and when you go for a walk outside and uh, to be able to have that transcendent sense of being a part of the universe of learning how to let go of our ego in the moment to moment of our life. And if we do that, that sort of bridges the gap, then there isn't this like the persona me and the creative me versus the regular me that's just, you know, stuck, there's uh, it, the mundane experiences become magical to some degree. Definitely. I mean, for me, that's certainly, as they would say, a word. That's yeah, we're, we're at the risk of sounding spiritual now. Well, I mean, is, it, is that part of the therapy that you offer? I mean, t teaching people meditation, mindfulness practice? I mean... It, it, that I offer, yes. Do I teach every single individual? No, in part because I really, 
you know, my, my, my philosophy on therapy always has been, um, you know, kind of like, I think my philosophy on making people dinner, not that I'm a, the greatest cook, but it's, you know, it's like serve them the thing that they really want to eat rather than I like making this. So everyone will eat this. And so while I really love mindfulness as not just a tool and a technique and a practice, but really as a, as you know, like you said, the underpinnings philosophically of a lot of the ways that the framework for which we think about uh, our experience in the world and how we navigate the world. Uh, but I also recognize that not every uh, patient or client that comes through, you know, sort of my door is looking for that. And some really want, you know, concrete skills on how to, you know, negotiate a, a conflict with their significant other or their manager. Some, uh, you know, really just want, uh, you know, something to deal with uh, a, a compulsion around a particular behavior uh, or how to get through depression. And I'd say that probably there are elements of the mindfulness framework that are interwoven you know, subtly into pretty much everything I do clinically, because it is such a big part of the way I see the world. Uh, but it's not like the explicit practices uh, really are on a case by case basis, depending on uh, what is the best fit and the need and, uh, and how open that particular individual is to going through and learning some of those tools. That makes sense. You talk about acceptance and commitment therapy. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So acceptance and commitment therapy is, um, Rich, what's, what's your instrument when you, do you write on, on guitar, piano? Mainly piano. Else? Mainly piano. Okay. So, so I, I think about it as, you know, I grew up sort of playing guitar. And I, think, I think that the analogy probably matches better for guitar, but maybe for piano also where, you know, it's like as a guitarist when you... Uh, you know, it's like every guitarist doesn't own one guitar, you own eight or 20 or 40 guitars. But, you know, whenever you get sort of a new guitar, it's like all of a sudden you don't play the other 39 for a while. And you're like, sure. I really like this one. And then I'm like just leaning into playing this D'Angelico or whatever it is. And maybe the same is true, I guess, for piano or keyboard players. If you get a new piano and you're super excited about it, you just kind of lean into that one. So for me, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a form of therapy that I began working with about uh, maybe five years ago now, um, was sort of like is the new, you know, the new guitar in my uh, in my stable. And uh, and it has become the one that uh, for the most part has has not quite replaced, but uh, almost replaced all the other guitars. And I'll tell you why. It's a really interesting approach. It was developed uh, about close to 40 years ago by Dr. Stephen Hayes uh, at the University of Nevada, Reno, and a handful of his colleagues. And since then, it's become, uh, you know, built out, developed, uh, well-researched, and uh, modified for use in a lot of different sort of clinical presentations, uh, it's a gold standard treatment for things like OCD and panic disorder and anxiety, and is also really, really useful for things like chronic pain, depression, uh, even there's some work now around, uh, you know, addictions and substance use. And uh, it, it's remarkable. And what it is in some ways is uh, sort of a combination of three approaches. There's like a big mindfulness element 
there's a big existential piece, kind of similar to the Viktor Frankl logotherapy about values and a sense of purpose in the world. And then it's very cognitive behavioral. So it really looks at how you deal with your thoughts and and in the end, what defines us, which is our actions and what we do in the world. And it's sort of the, the framework, which is probably more than than is worth getting into, you know, uh, this evening. But but it really combines all of those elements. And it's like, how do you deal with your thoughts when they're uh, distressing or maladaptive or get in your way? That drives your emotional experience, right? How do you deal with your emotional experience when your emotions are painful or uncomfortable? That'll define, you know, whether you're someone who stays present in the moment or sort of bails out and is an avoider of your experience. That'll define how much you live inside of your values, right? Because if we're checked out in the moment, then we're not living our values. We're just checked out. Um, if you stay present, you get a chance to figure out what your values are in a moment. How do you take those values and translate them into action and to, to, be, to become someone who lives, who embodies the things that are meaningful to them? And then, of course, how do all of those things impact our sense of self and the way we see ourselves in the world? And, and so that approach has, uh, has become something that I've now spent the last five years sort of studying it with some of the, uh, some of the pioneers and Dr. Hayes and some of the leaders uh, in this therapy approach, uh, and then also uh, integrating it into my practice. And it has definitely gotten better results uh, than any tool that I have ever worked with in, you know, now almost uh, 20, close to 20 years of seeing patients. So it's a melange of uh, mindfulness, CBT, and Viktor Frankl. And, and the sort of ex existential type therapies that really look at that bigger picture sense of purpose. Like CBT doesn't really, you know, it's really great in the nitty gritty at like how you deal concretely with a, you know, with a, a, a let's say a catastrophic anxiety thought or how you deal with a uh, repetitive unhealthy behavior that you're stuck in. But it doesn't really address like your sense of purpose in life, what gives your life meaning and how that informs all of those things. Whereas this sort of combines like the, the forest and the trees, right? And it looks at the really big picture of, you know, our sense of meaning in life, the really small picture of the details of how we navigate thoughts, emotional experience and behaviors, and then mindfulness as sort of the connector of all these things, because in order to navigate every aspect of our world in an effective way, we need to be fully present in our life. Yeah, wow. I love the piece of the existential piece, a sense of purpose and self-worth. Well, it's the Nietzsche thing, right? He who has a why to live for can bear any how, right? It's that idea that if, you know, like we're all going to suffer in our lives, you know, probably in some, to some degree on a daily basis. I mean, at least actually, maybe I should just speak from my own experience. I suffer in my daily life, emotionally or physically or relationally on a daily basis. Uh, and it's the sense of purpose that allows us to move through that and not become, you know, crippled or shattered by our, by the pain of life. Well, there's an interesting dynamic between the existential question, what you're framing as an existential question, and the question of, well, isn't just your aliveness and your awareness 
worth it alone? Isn't that good enough? Can I ask you a hard question, Rich? Please. Did you feel that at every moment in your life? <laughs> you mean, did I feel that at any moment in my life? Yeah, because I was going to say, it's like, wouldn't it be nice? But, you know, I certainly for most, especially in, you know, the till, you know, age 35 or well, maybe a little earlier, but when I really started studying, you know, the the mindfulness and getting much more heavily also into the traditional spiritual uh, approaches that I grew up around, but I hadn't really connected to. And that gave me a sense of meaning and purpose. I think before then, I mean, you know, there was rarely a day where, where just, you know, like life itself was like, okay, this is really worth it just for the experience. It was more like, fuck that, you know, like if there was an easy way out, you know, without consequence, I probably would have taken it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to learn the true nature of yourself and to put things in perspective. I was mentioning the dynamic between the two truths. They're both true. It's not one or the other. It's not either or. It's, it's non-dualistic. And that's uh, what I think is the genius of your approach there, including mindfulness, the existential piece, and uh, CBT. So let me ask you, a, I'm going to ask you a hard question. Please. I have, I'm coming to you. I'm a, a musician. I got terrible stage fright. So I, I need you to cure me of my stage fright. How do you do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I have had the occasional person show up with that presenting issue. So the first thing I tell them is the same thing I tell every person that ever has walked into my office since I started working with the acceptance and commitment therapy approach when they come in and say, uh, my main issue is anxiety and I need you to help make my anxiety go away. And what I say to them is, oh, cool. Uh, if you'd like me to make your anxiety go away, uh, then you're in the wrong office. But if you'd like me to teach you how to be able to thrive and do the things that are meaningful in the presence of your anxiety, then you're in the right office. So that's the first shift is that like the goal with stage fright, like any anxiety, is not to make it go away. And I'll tell you one of the secrets, which is I think, you know, something that we, we gloss over. We probably know it intuitively, but we don't really acknowledge it in the moment, which is, you know, how anxious do you get going outside in the morning to get the newspaper? Like zero to 10. And then how anxious would you get standing on stage at Coachella in front of 124,000 <laughs> people? And the question is, why? What's the difference? And the answer is, for the average, let's say, artist, one matters and one doesn't. Like, if I don't get the paper or I get it and I drop it or I get it and someone looks at me funny, it's like, who cares, right? But if I stand up there on stage at the main stage in front of 120,000 people and I sing the wrong note or I flub a line or I put on a performance that I see as lackluster, it's like, that's, you know, that's the thing that matters to me the most, right? Like we said earlier, people tie their worth to their creativity or to their performance. And so what happens is, Anxiety is not a bad thing. It's a sign that something is important to you. So the shocker isn't the person that experiences stage fright. The, what's actually shocking is that there are artists who don't experience stage fright, right? Because here's something that you're doing that matters so much 
there are an infinite amount of unknowns and possibilities of how, you know, standing on stage might play out. The stage might collapse. You might sing the wrong note. You might vomit on the stage. Someone might throw a tomato at you, right? You know, the place might go on fire. You, we can't predict any of that in advance. And our brain knows that. And it's like, it's a, the miracle is that people don't have stage fright, you know, which is either because they've already worked inside of themselves to be able to engage their anxiety in a healthy way, or because they're busy numbing their anxiety out with whatever substance or whatever band-aid they might use, because anxiety is a fundamental part of our experience. And so that's sort of the first part of what we do is we just learn to not demonize our own anxiety experience, which in some ways just takes the edge off it right there when, when it starts to show up. And instead of it being like, oh no, here we go again, it's this awful thing, it becomes like, oh, there's the sign that this, this, this event really matters to me tonight. You know, what I'm about to do matters. And that's why this is showing up. Jeez, that would just make me more nervous. Would it? Me personally. Interesting. If you're telling me this is really important, if I say, ah, if I screw up, who cares? But the fact that you're having that anxiety suggests that that statement is a lie. And even though you might be telling yourself, Oh, nah, it doesn't really matter. The fact that you're anxious about it suggests that you're lying to yourself. And we do not do a good job at lying to ourselves because you know you. You know on the inside. Some part of you knows. And we're better off facing the thing head on than we are lying to ourselves about it, which always comes back to catch us. And if you And if you face it head on, at least you can address it. So then we can do things like go, well, why does this matter? What about this matters, right? Can we understand that? The things that really matter to us, like connection, which is what we all really want in the end, we're actually going to have in our life no matter how this performance goes. And that starts to take the edge off. Uh -huh. And we can learn how to sit with our emotion, right? And what happens is like if you distill down stage fright from being this daunting, you know, sort of tangled ball of uncomfortable yarn to like what it actually feels like. So if we sat with it mindfully and without judging in the story of the experience, it's like, well, it's this feeling right here in the pit of my stomach that feels like a squeezing. And it's this feeling here on the sides of my intercostals and my ribs that feels like a tightness, right? And it's this feeling in my throat that feels like a lump. Oh, and I notice that I'm like, my body temperature has gone up and I'm sweating a little. And we could just describe that technically without getting into the story of what that means. And if we learn how to do that, then we could learn how to sit in that and be like, okay, well, could I sit with that tight feeling in my stomach and that squeezing in my chest? And could I just notice it without, you know, and that's the mindfulness piece, right? I don't need to get in the story of the experience and that's awful. And how do I make it go away? Because we know that just makes it worse. But if I was willing to sit with it, well, it's like, yeah, that's a feeling and it's an uncomfortable feeling, but it's just a feeling and feelings change and we survive them. And probably once you get out on stage and start performing, you, like most anxieties, you forget that it was there in the first place, right? Because almost always anxiety is worse in the anticipatory phase than in the actual moment where we become engaged mindfully in the practice of whatever we're doing on stage, right? And so we might learn how to shift uh, from A, getting out of the, so A, accepting that mindful, that the anxiety is not bad. It's a part of our experience. It's a, it's a street sign towards what matters. B, 
learning how to sit, that's the acceptance piece of acceptance and commitment therapy, learning how to sit in an uncomfortable emotional and physical experience. And it's like, it's not awful. It's just an experience, right? And if we could learn how to do that and practice that over time when we're not on stage, it becomes much easier to do that when we're about to walk onto stage. And then the third piece being the commitment, which is the intense focus on what is meaningful and what we are doing and the purpose of why we are there. And the more I pay attention to that person in the crowd who looks like they really want to hear uh, what I have to sing or the note I'm going to play, and I can connect to them on that meaningful level because that's why I'm doing this thing in the first place, all of a sudden my mind shifts from sitting in the anxiety to sitting in that purpose in that moment. And that's the commitment piece of acceptance and commitment therapy. And all of a sudden, it's like the whole focus just pulls out of the stew of the story of how uncomfortable this feeling is and how I need to get away from it and becomes this sense of like, this is a meaningful moment. Now I'm going to go make it meaningful and I'm going to carry with me some of these uncomfortable feelings that are the cost of doing something meaningful. Nice. And you slipped in there something where you said that you need to practice when you're not on stage sitting with uncomfortable feelings. Totally. And how do you do that? Well, you know, and I think that's one of the key components of all mindfulness practice, right, is learning to be uncomfortable. And whether we're doing that, you know, in sort of like a formal sitting meditation or whether we're having people practice that in their you know, just in the moment to moment of their daily life, you know, sort of like the meditation in action where, you know, when you're in the studio and you've got some writer's block and the next line you're trying to write isn't coming out the way you want, instead of just like go running outside to like hit a cigarette or a joint or whatever or something or bang, you know, get on your phone and scroll Instagram. It's like, cool, could we actually just sit for a moment and feel like what's showing up emotionally, where does that feeling of frustration with this uh, writer's block show up in your body? What does that feel like? Okay, could we just sit here for a minute with it together? You know, and I do lots of that with, uh, with patients and it's such a revelation for them. And they start to realize how much of their moment to moment experience is them running away from their own emotional experience, which is hard because it follows you as it turns out, right? Right. And that's so key. That's so crucial. It's a real game changer when you say, okay. And and by the way, stage fright is, you know, particularly extreme example of anxiety that everybody feels, right? For sure. It is is revolutionary to to look at the anxiety and say, I'm okay with that. I realize that it's not going away. And some people say that they're turning a threat into a challenge. I'm gonna take that energy of the anxiety, which is there to serve me, actually. The, the reason I'm feeling anxious is because either it's protecting me, it, it's my biology is protecting me from some perceived danger, or it wants me to perform really well. Yeah, it's the Yerkes-Dotson research. Are you familiar with Yerkes and Dotson? No, no. What's that? Oh, so they were two super famous researchers in like the early 1900s who were doing research with um, incredibly high level performers like uh, orchestra violinists and uh, theater dancers and looking at the impact of uh, anxiety on performance outcomes. And of course they found two things. 
which was this. And and now this is like the most well-known, well, not the most, but it's a fairly well-known piece of research in the, in the, in the academic psychology world that we talk about. And I think people in the performance worlds, whether that be, you know, performance athletes or musicians or actors, you know, sort of know this intuitively, which is they discovered two things, Yerkes and Dodson. Number one, if you have too much anxiety, it negatively affects your performance. Okay, shocker, right? Number two, if you have too little anxiety, it negatively affects your performance, right? Because people who don't have anxiety going into a moment don't prepare properly, they don't focus properly, they don't get that little bit of buzz. And like you were saying, like some measure of anxiety is actually good for you. So there's sort of a sweet spot in that like bell curve where like a moderate amount of anxiety is enough to get you pumped and enough to get you focused and enough to get you, you know, sort of adrenaline surging and you're ready to go, but not too much anxiety where it starts to cripple you and then you freeze up and go into sort of fight or flight or panic mode. Hmm, that's great. Yes, Buddha was right. It's always the middle way. Yeah. So you mentioned research, this this research project. Now you do a lot of research also. Is Thrive, is that about research? Correct. Okay, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing with Thrive? Sure, so Thrive, which is uh, sort of the, the acronym for the Tour Health Research Initiative, uh, is something we founded uh, about two and a half years ago, just you know, a little before the pandemic uh, began. And it was founded by myself and Ryan George. Uh, Ryan was a uh, guitar tech uh, and a backline tech for uh, Jack White and Beck and the Arcade Fire and a lot of really wonderful acts and has been uh, a touring member for about 20 years and has been really waving a flag for mental health and music industry uh, for about 20 years. And Ryan and I began to collaborate, uh, you know, sort of working on uh, ideas and programs to uh, to better support mental health in the touring part of the music industry. And the first thing we realized is, oh, there's basically no research out there that exists that's like really thorough research that talks about the nature of the issues. So we all know it anecdotally and you know, there's lots of stories and we know about high profile suicides and we know about, you know, there are artists that are depressed or that are anxious and there are tours that get canceled and there are uh, crew members that burn out or are suffering from stress related illness. But but no one's ever really comprehensively, uh, at least not in North America, studied uh, a understanding the levels of this stuff and b understanding what are the factors that that impact this like what's driving this and so we sort of pivoted from trying to design programs to designing research to be able to study uh these kinds of questions and so we launched the tour health research initiative along with a couple other partners and uh and it sort of uh you know began to take on a mind of its own so we conducted this first study uh right before uh, i think we launched literally in like February 2020, uh, I guess February 2020, right? So like a month before basically the industry shut down, uh, which was fortuitous because in a way, you know, if we're trying to understand the music industry and you ask people now about it, like we'll never again get a clear picture of what the industry was like because everybody's experience is so shaped by their experience during the pandemic, right? Which impacted their depression, their anxiety, their work life, the way they think about their work, 
Uh, and so we actually were able to collect this chunk of data from about 1,100 uh, touring professionals, it's artists and crew members. And then we like paused it right when the pandemic started because we didn't want to get our data sort of tainted by people's experience of the pandemic. And so, uh, so we got this like neat chunk of, it's about 280,000 data points uh, looking at uh, lifestyle on tour looking at health behaviors, looking at levels of depression, anxiety, burnout, suicidality, substance use, people's sleep, uh, their relationship life, their life on the road, and their uh, the dynamics within a tour and communication between tour members and all of these things. And to be able to understand uh, what are the factors that really drive uh, mental health uh, issues and those four horsemen that you were talking about. And so, so we've kind of completed that study and now we've expanded and we're starting to look at other studies, uh, that we're developing now looking at the impact of various programs. And if we, uh, deliver clinical services to tours, how that changes people's levels of depression, anxiety, or suicide level and things like that. So aside from the high levels of anxiety and depression that the data uncovered, was there any other factor that you think uh, was significant? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, we've, we're still in the process of analyzing the data just because with so many data points, there are so many different ways that we could look at uh, the various factors and what affects what, you know, how sleep affects people's substance use, how substance use affects people's sleep, how that affects, you know, people's level of, you know, their mood state, right? Uh, but one of the things I will tell you that I think you'll obviously find uh, fascinating with, uh, you know, given the context of this podcast, is that one of the things we looked for was protective factors, um, i.e., what are the uh, factors, either behavioral or internal, that help protect a person from really high levels of clinical depression, anxiety, and then at worst, right, suicide risk. And, uh, and it's interesting. And the number one protective factor that we found in the study, turns out, was participants' levels of mindfulness. Wow. And we did not predict that. That was not something we went in expecting to find. But it was really interesting. We used a uh, psychometric measure called the MOS, which is a, uh, a sort of a brief scale that measures people's level of, uh, of mindfulness and uh, just looked overall. And the level was, you know, kind of moderate, like, like average, you know, sort of for a non-meditator pretty much. So they weren't necessarily more mindful or less mindful, but there was this really, really high negative correlation between mindfulness and depression and anxiety and suicidality. So as people's level, the people at higher levels of mindfulness, you could directly see had lower levels of depression, lower levels of anxiety, lower levels of suicidality. And that for us is a massive finding, right? Because that really talks about the need uh, to develop uh, mindfulness-based interventions and programs to better support touring people and help train them in mindfulness and hopefully get that result of way better mental health outcomes. And so based on that, now with, uh, with my partner, Zach, and Borer Newman and Associates, that's exactly what we're doing is sort of building mindfulness-based programs for tours uh, to be able to go out and actually train them and to hopefully improve their mental health using mindfulness. And how would you deliver those services? Would you go on tour? Is that with people or? 
Uh, so, so that's sort of a different arm of, of what I'm involved in. And so Zach Borer, who's a, a colleague of mine out in Los Angeles and also a sort of 10-year touring veteran as a performer who is a uh, licensed mad marriage and family therapist and a really, really great clinician, has been working with, uh, with industry members for a bunch of years um, in his private practice. So him and I sort of launched a, uh, a venture together about five months ago it started with this big white paper which was uh took us about five months to write uh sort of almost like an expose on the underpinnings of mental health issues in the music industry and how uh, the pandemic has offered this like once in a lifetime chance for the industry to actually get some of these things under control and then along with that we basically took the results of all the research plus years of clinical experience from both of us working in the industry and built a series of programs and services specifically for the industry to begin to provide mental health support. And there's a lot of wonderful organizations out there like Music Cares and Sweet Relief and the Sims Foundation and uh, and that are all sort of mental health organizations within the industry. But most of them don't actually do the clinical work right? They'll either provide funding or raise awareness, but there, there are almost no organizations where it's clinicians like going out, like you said, on tour or working by Zoom or working with a tour in pre-production or working in a studio with a uh, group of artists while they're in the recording phase to be able to provide ongoing support. And some of the things that we've talked about of, you know, helping people build mindfulness skills, emotion regulation skills, learning how to manage their anxiety, learning how to manage their interpersonal world, uh, using all of these tools and all of our experience, uh, but really founded in all the results of the research so that we're not sort of flying by the seat of our pants in our own, you know, limited experience, but rather really looking at what the data suggests is at the root of this and building programs based on that to address those specific points. And so, uh, so we've launched this about six or eight weeks ago, and we're just now starting to work with uh, the first tours, the first festivals this summer, the first organizations in the music industry and providing support for, let's say, the roster of a management company and to be able to care for all their artists uh, in, you know, sort of meaningful ways. And this is then takes the research and allows us to actually go make real change in people's lives using that. So it's touring is T and Thrive is for touring. It's the Tour Health Research Initiative. Right. So there would be a little bit different data if it was based on the creative people, the the songwriters, producers. Totally. And and we're really interested in that. It's actually interesting between Zach and I, you know, and this uh, sort of Bohr Newman and Associates and the actual like clinical arm of what we do or the consulting arm of what we do that works directly with individuals. So he comes from the songwriter and studio world. I come from the touring world and it's actually interesting. And so we've kind of got these two loves, which is great because he's constantly driving forward like, hey, let's think about how these things apply differently 
for the people that aren't out on the road, but have the pressure of being a songwriter or the pressure of being in the, in the recording studio, right. Or the pressure of being in the management side. And I'm always thinking about, let's think about the impact of like what this is going to be like for the crew member on the road. Right. And, uh, and because of that, I think we've ended up actually with something nice where, you know, we're sort of looking at puzzle pieces for both sides. So that's true. The Thrive research speaks specifically to the touring side. There isn't really research that exists yet on the songwriter and recording side, uh, but we're working on it. And what is Backline? So Backline is a uh, different organization that uh, that Zach had found, was one of the co-founders of originally. They're sort of like a, as if like a matchmaking service. And so if there's a individual in the industry, whether that's a performer, crew member, uh, someone who works in an industry company uh, or a family member of an artist who uh, needs to get uh, direct one-on-one -on -one clinical support. So they, uh, you can reach out to them and they basically do an intake and then they'll find you a clinician that, uh, that matches your needs that's located in the area near you. So they basically vet clinicians around the country and there are very few that have extensive experience in uh, working with individuals in the music industry, but there are some that have a little bit of experience and at least Backline has vetted them to make sure that they might be a decent fit. And then they sort of like make the, uh, you know, the match and say, here, we found you a therapist in Denver where you're located and it's so-and-so and they're willing to see you and here's their phone number. Yeah, there's a little similarity, I think, with some of the stuff that Music Cares does. Music Cares does a lot of different things, but one thing they do is they do refer people to Therapists, they give them some money for their beginning therapy, um, so they support them also financially. Yeah, absolutely. Which is which is wonderful. Listen, Music Cares has, um, you know, has saved no doubt a lot of lives. And you know, I think when we think about it, there are you know well over a hundred thousand people uh, that compose you know the music industry. Well over. And so you know, probably as much care as we can get people, you know, there's going to be no shortage of. Uh, of those who are still seeking help. I think this, you know, ASCAP alone has something like 300,000 members. Wow. Okay. It's a big number. So I'm curious, uh, did you come to mindfulness through your interest in clinical psychology because you were studying that? Or was it more of a personal or is it both? Or how did you come to mindfulness? Yeah. Uh, I came to mindfulness because I almost died. Mm-hmm. But in December of 2004, uh, I was in a very severe car accident and, uh, you know, black ice and my car flipped over a couple times in the Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania and then crashed down the side of a mountain. And uh, I was very fortunate to have survived. And in the aftermath of that, so in, you know, in 2005, um, I, you know, all sorts of uh, chronic uh, medical issues and chronic pain and, you know, sort of CAT scans and MRIs and doctors and specialists and hospital for special surgery and all the things you might do after, you know, being in a severe accident. And, uh, and none of it was really working. And, uh, and I was studying uh, with a voice teacher at the time uh, in Toronto, Canada, a fellow by the name of Orville Hine, who's a uh, one of those hidden gems. If he was in LA or New York, he would be the you know most in-demand voice teacher on the planet. Uh, but he's in Toronto, so he flies under the radar a little bit. And 
uh, one of the things that he taught in his vocal classes was uh, as a way of sort of understanding your instrument, right? And in the same way that as a piano player, you know, you got to understand how when you hit the note, you know, the string vibrates and then you sort of get the sound as a, uh, as a, an individual, if you're a vocalist, right? Well, like your body is your instrument. And so learning about how you breathe, how you carry muscle tension in your body, your posture, right, are all critical uh, components of the way that your voice is going to come out. And his approach essentially used Vipassana, or as you said, Vipassana. I didn't know that it had a sh, now I know, and I appreciate you <laughs> teaching me that this evening, Rich. I forgot whether that's Sanskrit or Pali. There's one of them that's, that's pronounced as Vipassana. Yeah. So he used Vipassana as a, as, a, like as a way in to be able to sit with your body's own experience, to learn about your muscle tension and your breathing and all of those things. And, and I began to practice with him. And one month, two months, three months in, all I'm doing is this one exercise, this one meditation every day that he's told me to do. And I'm doing it just to sing better. And the next thing I know, all of a sudden, for the first time in six months since the accident, my headaches start to go away. And then I can move my body in ways that, that everything was frozen. And my breathing starts to change. And my anxiety level went down. And, and all of a sudden, I went from literally being up there, like hanging on by a thread to starting to function again. And I was like, what is this? Like, like what is happening to me? And then I began to uh, study and explore more. And then I began to go on retreats with people like John Kabat-Zinn and uh, Joseph Goldstein and um, Richie Davidson and some of the real you know, senior uh, Sharon Zaltzberg, some of the really wonderful senior uh, teachers in North America and to practice. And I spent years uh, studying with uh, some of the real greats and uh, taking courses and doing the work to uh, build a practice, a mindfulness practice that would allow me to continue that journey. And at first, it really wasn't about teaching anybody. It was just about, you know, continuing my own healing journey and uh, and learning the wisdom of what this sort of approach had to uh, to offer my life, and then eventually, you know, a decade in, it, it was you know something in in some of the circumstances I was in, whether it was uh, individual patients in my practice or uh, the demand in the rehab center that I was running for me to start running groups, and so I began to teach a little bit of it, and and that's it, and that's really the last fifteen years of my life or sixteen years has been sort of that journey of incorporating these uh, mindfulness themes and then the practices into uh, my day-to-day. -day. And, you know, uh, without any uh, judgment, I could tell you that I'm, I'm very, very far from having mastered it. Uh, if there is such a thing, even I'm very far from it. And, uh, and But every day is a different journey. And the interesting thing is, the, the weeks where I'm able to be very diligent about it and I stick with my, you know, daily 32 minutes of, you know, sort of sitting practice uh, versus the weeks where I don't, it's just a different week. Mm -hmm. Like I'm more reactive. My anxiety is higher. Everything is more in balance on the weeks where I'm meditating consistently. Like, and, and I've seen that over, over well over a decade now that that's always been the case. What an amazing story. So 
Do you have a day of mindfulness when you're practicing? Yes and no, in the sense that I don't have a formal mindfulness day per se where I shut down you know, everything in my life and just do sitting practices and walking meditations and mindful yoga and things like that, the way they might if you were uh, taking an MBSR course, let's say. Uh, so I don't, I wouldn't say I have anything as formal as that, but uh, being a, a fairly traditional Jew, and uh, I do try from uh, Friday evening sundown till Saturday evening sundown to uh, disconnect, you know, mindfully from my electronics. And so I'm spending about 25 hours without TV, email, phone, you know, YouTube, Netflix, all that. And, uh, and it gives me during that time a chance to, uh, to do things mindfully. So, you know, when I'll have dinner with uh, family uh, or on my own, it's, uh, I'm just present with my dinner. It's not like I'm, you know, watching a TV show while I'm doing it. When I go for a jog on Saturday afternoon, there's no earphones, there's no music. It's just me listening to the sound of my breathing and noticing the feeling of my body, noticing nature around me. And so so it's not necessarily uh, intentionally designed as a day of mindfulness, but, but I'd say I have elements of that almost on a weekly basis, uh, which are really, you know, I thought about it this year during the pandemic, which uh, in my practice, and I recognize, you know, I'm very grateful and I'm sensitive to the fact that so many people have, have lost their livelihood and their work during this. And, and my heart bleeds for, for every one of them, truly, you know, come to my house and hang out. For me, it's been the busiest year, you know, because so many people in crisis and, and my phone's been off the hook and, and I've constantly thought about it. And I'm like, man, that one day of mindfulness or that day of disconnection which is actually really a day of connection, just a day of connection right. to the to the inner world, uh, has been a lifesaver. Like I couldn't imagine. I I would be I would be in a in a, in a hospital right now if I were pushing at this pace seven days a week. Um, and so having that chance to to shut it down and recalibrate uh, weekly is is literally life saving for me. Yeah, for me too. So do you have a similar uh, similar sort of practice that you engage in? Yeah, I have d daily meditation, of course, uh, and then several times a year retreats, but a weekly day of mindfulness. I'm not great at it. I don't disconnect from the internet, but I do spend more time meditating and uh, trying to do things mindfully and not engage in anything connected with materialism. You know, you talked about the vocal teacher getting you to do this one meditation, which changed everything for you. I'm sure it's a very simple meditation, but could you describe it a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, and it's so interesting that, you know, when I look back now, it's, you know, I've never done it since. And, you know, and once I moved into the mindfulness world, then I was just doing sort of traditional, you know, breath focused or body focused. But it was what was called a resonance exercise. And he would have us, you know, sort of like stand in uh, what would look like, I guess the the yogic, like the Iyengar yogic version of mountain pose, you know, just that really like stacking your body from the ground up in a really strong and balanced, you know, where uh, like my old yoga teacher used to say, uh, where you're still, but not stiff. And so we would sort of like line up our body in this good standing posture and you would hum a series of notes over and over again for about 30 minutes. Uh, 
and you would watch where you felt the vibration in your body and you would just observe and you would observe how it changed and you would observe what emotions showed up and you would observe what tension showed up in your body and you would observe where your thoughts went as you were just continuing to hum this series of notes and watching where the vibration moved within your body. And uh, yeah, it was what he called the resonance exercise. And, uh, and it really, you know, and on many levels, that's what it was. Oh, well, I love that. You got to make a video of this. You got to show us how to do it because it's combining so many different important elements in there. Right. So you might feel, you know, you start and you kind of feel like the, um, you know, the vibration maybe in your chest or in your sort of like, uh, you know, in your, in your windpipe as you're sort of, as the air is moving through as you hum. And then as you sort of sink in a little deeper into the meditation, you start to notice like you can feel it, you know, radiating around your chest. And then, you know, eventually there were times I could feel it in my like fingertips and my toes, you know, and as you learn how to carry less tension in your body, right? The vibration really flows through the body. It's almost like that, that conduit thing you were describing. You really feel like, oh, I got out of my own way. So you're not particularly focused on your breathing. Correct. I mean, there were, there were, you know, that I now do a lot of, I think in, you know, in the more traditional meditations of just observing the breathing, but here now is really specifically around, around the sound and the vibe and the vibration in your own body. Um, it was interesting, you know, I, 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 I never studied with any other vocal teacher. So I, I'm, this is like far beyond my area of expertise at all. But one of the things he always would say that I loved, um, was this idea that, like the goal of learning to be a great vocalist is not learning how to sing. It's learning how to get out of your own way and to stop doing things that block your natural voice. So when we breathe improperly or when we tighten our throat or carry muscle tension in our chest, right? Or have incorrect posture, it it doesn't allow for the natural voice. We're almost constricting what, what fundamentally is already there. You know, it's like, it is that idea of like our innate wholeness, right? And it's not like we're trying, it's not like we're not enough, but if you build this thing, then you'll be enough. It's like, no, we're enough as we are if we just got out of our own way and let the, drop the ego and the tightness and the fighting and the resistance and all of the work that, um, that he does as a vocal teacher is about learning how to open things and just get out of your own way. Wow. One of your many talents is having a knack for hooking up with amazing teachers. Yeah, you know, maybe, but I'm very fortunate. I feel like uh, I've been lucky in that. I don't know if it's a knack or a straight dumb luck or destiny, but uh, I really have. Uh, and then when I find them, I, I try to really, you know, squeeze as much wisdom and, and learn as much as I can and, and be a, uh, you know, and then become someone that's able to then share and transmit some of that with others and, you know, sort of pay it forward. So how many notes were in this refrain? You know, I don't remember from <laughs> 2005. I think I'm going to say, I think it's three. I think it was like not as sophisticated. Oh, like a da, 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 you know, like one of those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want it too complex because then your mind, your analytical discursive part of the mind gets in, engaged. You don't want it. Yeah. Too okay. Now I'm starting. I, I think it was three notes and I think it, you know, it sort of moves up, right? Like it starts, you know, at a low and it like climbs like 
whatever it is, you know, half tone by half tone up and then back down. And, you know, there's different versions based on what your vocal range is. So there's like the tenor version or the baritone version or the. Yeah. One of the, one of the techniques that I teach is based on the Pythagorean intervals. You know, Pythagoras thought that the universe is, is a music of the spheres. Right. And certain intervals are the basis of existence. It's like one eight one, so that's three notes, or one four five, you know, the intervals of one and four, one and five. It's and it, sometimes it's just two notes, and sometimes it's three notes, and it's coordinated, coordinated with the breathing. But what's what's different about what you're talking about is the focus now is on where you feel the vibration in the body. I got to try that. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to mention? Um. Hmm. I'm trying to think, you know, and that within the meditation world, compassion is a really big piece. Yeah. And I'm actually curious about your, your experience of this, Rich is like where, you know, the sort of compassion driven meditation and the focus on that, like, you know, you having been in the industry much longer than I have, where can we introduce some of that to be able to, to, to help support people better and to help uh, bolster the way things are? Well, you know, service to others is a fundamental part of recovery. I have friends that are recovering addicts and um, mindfulness, meditation practice, prayer practice, and gratitude and service to others is an essential part of that practice. I think it's part of healing, and I think there's also something that we should be aware of, there's a limitation in the language that we use. We talk about mindfulness. There's other pieces in meditation that are very important. Mindfulness is a stage, but there's concentration, as you well know. And then I think there's another level of selfless awareness. It's just pervasive, omnipresent awareness. And when we talk about mindfulness, there's the observer and the observed. Right? You're the spectator in the theater of your experience. So you can have a critical distance. You have room to coexist with, if it's anxiety or panic or depression, whatever it is. Like you would saying, you're, you're tolerating it. You're not running away from it. But then there's another level where there is no observer and observed. There is no self and other, subject and object. And at that level, compassion is built in because... You see the other as yourself. And so it's, it's a natural feeling to care about everything that exists because everything that exists is really fundamentally who you are. You know, I am that. <laughs> and so it's not an effort um, to be compassionate in that sense. Now, of course, it's, it takes effort in real life when you get back to you know, relativistic reality that day by day. So it's an outgrowth. It's a natural byproduct of seeing how yourself can dissolve into something, you know, where it actually came from. And that's a reality as well as the other reality that you live every day. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think that's the, that's like we said, you know, the, the spiritual side in some ways, the the oneness of all things, which, you know, maybe when we're in our, uh, you know, most plugged in or most, most vulnerable moments, we can, we can access that. We got to get out of our own way to let the true voice come out. Right. 
Well, I'm going to have to listen to this podcast three or four times to figure out what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. But I appreciate very much everything from the the Chaim story. I think we should call Chaim Chaim from now on. I'm talking about the band. I, you know, I wonder if they, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's hard to predict how they'd go for that, but I'm going to find out at some point and I will report back. Okay, beautiful. I'm uh, wishing you great success with Thrive and Backline. It sounds like you're fairly, I didn't press you on this, uh, but it sounds like you're fairly hopeful that uh, there's not only a heightened awareness of the mental health issues, but also a intensified commitment, as you talk about acceptance and commitment. So there's acceptance of the problem and maybe a degree of more commitment on the part of powers in the music industry to do something about it. Slowly but surely. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, and thank you so much for having me. I, uh, you know, I always appreciate getting to, uh, to hang and get into the nitty gritty. And I think, you know, I really see, uh, you know, people like you as, you know, we're, we're allies, like we're doing this thing together and, uh, you know, kind of being able to both share that sensitivity to wanting to help create healing, uh, among the wonderful creatives and wonderful people of the industry. And then also the, the seeing the value in the tools of these contemplative approaches like mindfulness and, uh, and of those ways of looking at the world and, uh, you know, it's like you and I are on the same journey to help introduce this and uh, be able to proliferate it a little more. Uh, and I think hopefully uh, we get the opportunity to do so. Uh, the world will hopefully be a little better because of it. So, yeah, thank you, Richie. Much appreciate. Thank you, Chaim. See you soon. All right. That was another splendid tale of the tape, uh, in my opinion. And, of course, I want to thank you, the listener, for hanging in this long. And I also want to thank my very talented co-producer, Hannah Bowers, James Bianco on editing, Anne-Marie Butcher, and Taylor Matthews on the art department. Not on the art department, in the art department. And, uh, of course, uh, the listeners, if you uh, care to please leave us a rating, some stars would be nice. We'd appreciate it because without your support, we can't afford to continue to do this broadcast. Till we meet the next time, I hope that you can stay in a higher octave and lets you and I stay in tune.